Hello and welcome to our podcast on the relationship between health and economic development across countries. In this episode, we'll be exploring the fascinating and complex ways in which investments in health capital can drive economic growth and reduce income disparities. First, let's start with some background. It's well established that there is a strong correlation between a country's level of economic development and the health outcomes of its citizens. In general, wealthier countries tend to have better health outcomes, including longer life expectancies, lower rates of disease, and higher levels of overall well-being. However, the relationship between health and economic development is not always straightforward, and there are many factors that can impact this relationship. One of the key insights from recent research is that investments in health capital can be a powerful driver of economic growth and development. Health capital refers to the stock of knowledge, skills, and abilities that individuals possess that contribute to their overall health and well-being. This can include things like education, access to health care, and healthy lifestyle choices. When individuals have higher levels of health capital, they are more productive and able to contribute more to the economy. For example, Individuals with higher levels of education are more likely to have higher-paying jobs and to be more innovative and entrepreneurial. They are also less likely to miss work due to illness or to require expensive medical treatments, which can be a drain on the economy. In addition to these direct economic benefits, investments in health capital can also have important spillover effects on other areas of the economy. For example, healthier individuals are more likely to have healthy children which can lead to intergenerational improvements in health and well-being. They are also more likely to be active and engage members of their communities, which can lead to increased social capital and stronger social networks. Of course, there are many challenges to promoting investments in health capital, particularly in low-income countries where resources are often limited. One of the key challenges is ensuring that individuals have access to high-quality health care and education, which can be expensive and difficult to provide in many settings. There are also cultural and social factors that can impact health outcomes, such as gender norms and social stigma around certain health conditions. Despite these challenges, there are many promising strategies for promoting investments in health capital and driving economic growth and development. These include things like investing in public health infrastructure, promoting healthy lifestyle choices, and providing access to high-quality education and health care. There are also many innovative approaches being developed such as mobile health technologies and community-based health interventions. Overall, the relationship between health and economic development is a complex and multifaceted one, with many factors that can impact this relationship. However, recent research has shown that investments in health capital can be a powerful driver of economic growth and development, with important spillover effects on other areas of the economy. As we continue to explore this topic, it's important to keep in mind the many challenges and opportunities that exist in promoting investments in health capital. By working together to address these challenges and develop innovative solutions, we can help to create a healthier, more prosperous world for all. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and we hope you'll join us again.
Hello and welcome to our podcast. Today, we will be discussing an important topic that affects many people across the United States, the housing market, and its impact on the Great Recession. The Great Recession was a period of economic downturn that lasted from 2007 to 2009. It was caused by a variety of factors, including the collapse of the housing market. During this time, many homeowners found themselves unable to pay their mortgages, leading to a wave of foreclosures and a decline in housing prices. This in turn had a ripple effect on the broader economy, leading to job losses, business closures, and a general sense of economic uncertainty. So, what caused the housing market to collapse in the first place? There are many factors at play, but one of the key issues was a lack of liquidity in the market. In other words, there were not enough buyers and sellers to keep the market functioning smoothly. This led to a situation where homes were sitting on the market for longer periods of time, and prices were not adjusting quickly enough to reflect changing market conditions. This is where our PDF comes in. The Geography of Housing Market Liquidity During the Great Recession is a research paper that explores the impact of housing liquidity on the severity, timing, and length of the Great Recession across different regions in the United States. The authors of the paper use a variety of data sources, including IRS data and housing market statistics, to paint a picture of how the housing market performed during this time. One of the key findings of the paper is that there was a great deal of variation in housing market performance across different zip codes. Some areas were hit much harder than others, with longer listing times and steeper declines in housing prices. This suggests that there were local factors at play that contributed to the overall collapse of the housing market. Another important finding of the paper is that liquidity played a significant role in the housing market collapse. Homes that sat on the market for longer periods of time tended to sell for lower prices, which in turn led to more foreclosures and a further decline in prices. This created a vicious cycle that was difficult to break. So, what can we learn from this research? For one thing, it highlights the importance of liquidity in the housing market. When there are not enough buyers and sellers, the market can become unstable and lead to a collapse. Policymakers should be aware of this and take steps to ensure that the market remains liquid, even during times of economic uncertainty. Additionally, the research underscores the importance of local factors in understanding the housing market. While there were certainly broader economic forces at play during the Great Recession, the fact that different zip codes experienced different levels of housing market performance suggests that there were also local factors at play. Policymakers should take this into account when designing policies to address housing market issues. Overall, the geography of housing market liquidity during the Great Recession is an important piece of research that sheds light on the complex factors that contributed to the housing market collapse during the Great Recession. By understanding the role of liquidity and local factors in the housing market, we can work towards creating a more stable and sustainable housing
Hello and welcome to our podcast on worker diversity and wage growth since 1940. Today, we'll be discussing a fascinating topic that affects all of us, how the changing demographics of the average worker have affected wage growth in the United States over the past several decades. First, let's start with some background information. The U.S. economy has undergone significant changes since the 1940s, including shifts in the types of jobs available, changes in technology, and changes in the demographics of the workforce. These changes have had a profound impact on the real wage rate, or the amount of money that workers earn adjusted for inflation. One of the key findings of this research is that changes in the demographics of the average worker have played a significant role in wage growth over time. Specifically, the average worker in the 2010s is older, more educated, more likely to be a woman, less likely to be white, and slightly less likely to be single than the average worker in the 1940s. These changes in the composition of the workforce have affected wage growth in two ways, through changes in the hourly wages of various types of workers and through changes in the type composition of workers. To understand how these changes have affected wage growth, the researchers conducted a series of counterfactual experiments. These experiments involved computing the distribution of education, sex, race, and marital status conditional on age, as well as the distribution of age, sex, race, and marital status conditional on education. By comparing these distributions to the actual distributions observed in the data, the researchers were able to quantify the contributions of specific marginal distributions to wage growth over time. One of the key concepts discussed in this research is the distribution effect. This effect refers to the impact of changes in the composition of the workforce on wage growth. For example, if the proportion of women in the workforce increases over time, this may lead to a decrease in the average wage rate if women are paid less than men on average. Conversely, if the proportion of highly educated workers increases over time, this may lead to an increase in the average wage rate if highly educated workers are paid more than less educated workers on average. Another important concept discussed in this research is the productivity slowdown. This refers to a period of slower productivity growth in the U.S. economy that began in the 1970s and has continued to the present day. The productivity slowdown has had a significant impact on wage growth, as slower productivity growth means that there is less money available to pay workers. Despite the productivity slowdown, the researchers found that changes in the demographics of the average worker have had a significant impact on wage growth over time. Specifically, they found that aging and education have enhanced wage growth, while the increased participation of women and non-white workers has deterred wage growth due to gender and racial wage gaps. Overall, this research provides important insights into the relationship between worker diversity and wage growth in the United States. By understanding how changes in the composition of the workforce have affected wage growth over time, policymakers and researchers can develop more effective strategies for promoting economic growth and reducing inequality. We hope that this podcast has been informative and thought-provoking, and we encourage you to read the full article for more detailed information on this important topic.
Hello and welcome to our podcast on the Phillips Curve. Today, we will be discussing the relevance of this economic model in today's economy and exploring some interesting findings that challenge the traditional view of the Phillips Curve. The Phillips Curve is a model that shows the relationship between inflation and unemployment. The traditional view of the Phillips Curve suggests that there is a trade-off between inflation and unemployment. In other words, when inflation is high, unemployment is low, and vice versa. This relationship is often used by policymakers to make decisions about monetary policy. However, recent research has challenged the traditional view of the Phillips curve. In this podcast, we will be discussing a recent study that uses spectral analysis to examine the Phillips curve in more detail. Spectral analysis is a technique that allows us to examine the relationship between two time series at different frequencies. The study finds that the relationship between inflation and unemployment is more complex than previously thought. In the long run, high inflation tends to cause high unemployment instead of low unemployment. In the intermediate run, high inflation tends to follow low unemployment instead of leading it. This challenges the traditional view of the Phillips curve and suggests that policymakers may need to rethink their approach to monetary policy. The study also finds that the Phillips curve has evolved over time. Before 1993, there was a stable relationship between inflation and unemployment. However, this relationship broke down after 1993. This suggests that there may be other factors at play that are affecting the relationship between inflation and unemployment. So, what are the implications of these findings for monetary policy? The study suggests that policymakers may need to take a more nuanced approach to monetary policy. Instead of relying solely on the Phillips curve, policymakers may need to consider other factors that are affecting the relationship between inflation and unemployment. This could include factors such as changes in technology, globalization, and demographics. In conclusion, the Phillips curve is a model that has been used by policymakers for decades to make decisions about monetary policy. However, recent research has challenged the traditional view of the Phillips curve and suggests that policymakers may need to take a more nuanced approach to monetary policy. By considering other factors that are affecting the relationship between inflation and unemployment, policymakers may be able to make more informed decisions about monetary policy that are better suited to today's economy. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the Phillips Curve. We hope that this podcast has provided you with a better understanding of the Phillips Curve and its relevance in today's economy. While the traditional view of the Phillips Curve has been challenged, it is important to note that this model is still an important tool for policymakers. By continuing to study the Phillips Curve and its relationship with inflation and unemployment, we can gain a better understanding of the economy and make more informed decisions about monetary policy. Thank you for tuning into our podcast, and we hope to see you again soon.
Hello and welcome to our podcast on the topic of formalization and informality in developing. Economies. Today, we'll be discussing the benefits and challenges of formalizing businesses and reducing informality in these economies. First, let's define what we mean by formal and informal work. Formal work refers to employment that is registered with the government and provides benefits such as social security, health care, and legal protections. Informal work, on the other hand, is unregistered and often lacks these benefits and protections. In many developing economies, a large portion of the workforce is engaged in informal work. While this type of work can provide flexibility and autonomy, it also comes with significant drawbacks. Informal workers often lack access to social protections and are vulnerable to exploitation and abuse. Additionally, informal businesses may struggle to access credit and other resources that could help them grow and become more productive. So, what are the benefits of formalizing businesses and reducing informality? One major benefit is increased productivity. Formal businesses are often more efficient and productive than informal ones, as they have access to resources such as credit, legal protections, and training programs. Its increased productivity can lead to higher wages and better working conditions for employees. Another benefit of formalization is increased tax revenue for governments. When businesses are registered and paying taxes, governments have more resources to invest in public goods such as education, health care, and infrastructure. This can lead to improved living standards for citizens and a more stable economy. However, formalization is not without its challenges. For one, it can be difficult and expensive for businesses to register and comply with government regulations. Additionally, some workers may prefer the flexibility and autonomy of informal work and may resist efforts to formalize their employment. Despite these challenges, there are many policies that can help encourage formalization and reduce informality in developing economies. For example, governments can provide incentives such as tax breaks or simplified registration processes for businesses that formalize. They can also invest in programs that provide training and resources to help informal businesses become more productive and efficient. Overall, formalization and reducing informality can have significant benefits for both businesses and workers in developing economies. While there are challenges to implementing these policies, there are also many opportunities for governments, businesses, and workers to work together to create a more formal and productive economy. Thank you for listening to our podcast on this important topic. Thank you for listening to our podcast on this important topic. We hope that you have gained a better understanding of the benefits and challenges of formalization and informality in developing economies. As we have discussed, formalization can lead to increased productivity, higher wages, and improved living standards for citizens. However, it is not without its challenges and policies aimed at reducing informality must be carefully designed and implemented to ensure that they are effective and equitable. We encourage you to continue learning about this topic and to stay engaged in discussions about how to create more formal and productive economies around the world. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to bringing you more informative and engaging.
Hello and welcome to our podcast on the impact of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009 on Public School Districts. This report analyzes the positive effects of the Act's education funding component on staffing, expenditures, and debt accumulation. The American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, also known as the Recovery Act, was a federal stimulus package designed to help the United States recover from the Great Recession. One of the key components of the Act was its education funding, which aimed to provide financial assistance to public school districts across the country. The report we will be discussing today analyzes the impact of the Recovery Act's education funding on public school districts. The report found that the funding had a significant positive impact on staffing, expenditures, and debt accumulation in public school districts. One of the key findings of the report was that the education funding helped to prevent layoffs of teachers and other school staff during the recession. This was particularly important because many public school districts were facing budget shortfalls and were considering laying off staff in order to balance their budgets. The education funding provided by the Recovery Act helped to prevent these layoffs and allowed public school districts to maintain their staffing levels. In addition to preventing layoffs, the education funding also allowed public school districts to increase their expenditures on a variety of programs and services. For example, many districts were able to invest in new technology, update their facilities, and provide additional support services to students. These investments helped to improve the quality of education in public school districts and provided students with access to new and innovative learning opportunities. Finally, the report found that the education funding had a positive impact on debt accumulation in public school districts. Many districts were facing significant debt burdens prior to the recession, and the education funding provided by the Recovery Act helped to alleviate some of this debt. This allowed districts to invest in new programs and services without adding to their debt burdens. Overall, the report provides strong evidence that the education funding provided by the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009 had a significant positive impact on public school districts. The funding helped to prevent layoffs, increase expenditures on programs and services, and alleviate debt burdens. These investments helped to improve the quality of education in public school districts and provided students with access to new and innovative learning opportunities. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the impact of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009 on public school districts. We hope you found this information informative and helpful. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the impact of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009 on public school districts. We hope you found this information informative and helpful. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. It is important to note that, while the education funding provided by the Recovery Act had a significant positive impact on public school districts, there were also some challenges and limitations. For example, some districts faced difficulties in accessing the funding, and there were concerns about the sustainability of the investments made with the funding over the long term. Despite these challenges, the education funding provided by the Recovery Act remains an important example of how federal investment in education can have a positive impact on public school districts and the students they serve. As we continue to navigate the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on education, it is important to remember the lessons learned from the Recovery Act 
and to continue to invest in our public, schools, and the students they serve. Thank you again for listening to our podcast, and we look forward to bringing you more informative and engaging content in the future. Hello, and welcome to our podcast on Rethinking Monetary Policy and Independence. Today, we'll be discussing a fascinating PDF file written by John H. Cochran, which challenges current consensus opinions and offers new ideas for consideration. Cochran begins by surveying monetary policy strategy, regulation, and central banks' mandates and independence. He argues that strongly negative interest rates, vastly expanded quantitative easing, or extensive forward guidance cannot or should not stimulate the economy in the next recession. Instead, he advocates for a price-level target and fixing the spread between indexed and nominal debt. He also argues for a large balance sheet of interest-paying reserves achieved via a flat supply curve, though he suggests that the Treasury should issue reserve-like debt as well to take up much of that role. One of the key takeaways from Cochrane's paper is his stance on central bank mandates and independence. He argues that central banks should avoid the temptation towards ever-expanding roles, including macroprudential policy, discretionary credit cycle management, asset price targeting, and using their regulatory power to advance social and political goals such as climate change and inequality. Instead, he suggests that only limited scope of action to areas of agreed technocratic competence will salvage central banks and international institutions' useful independence. Cochrane's ideas are particularly relevant in the current economic climate, where central banks around the world are grappling with the challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic. Many central banks have resorted to unconventional monetary policy measures, such as negative interest rates and quantitative easing, to stimulate the economy. However, Cochrane argues that these measures are unlikely to be effective in the long run and may even have unintended consequences. One of the most interesting aspects of Cochrane's paper is his argument for a price-level target. This is a departure from the current practice of targeting inflation, which has been the cornerstone of monetary policy for many years. Cochrane argues that a price-level target would be more effective in stabilizing the economy and would provide a clearer signal to the public about the central bank's intentions. Another key idea in Cochrane's paper is his proposal for a large balance sheet of interest-paying reserves. He argues that this would help to stabilize the economy by providing a buffer against shocks, and would also help to prevent the need for unconventional monetary policy measures in the future. Overall, Cochrane's paper offers a thought-provoking perspective on the challenges facing central banks and monetary policy. His ideas are likely to spark debate and discussion among policymakers and economists alike and may even influence the direction of monetary policy in the years to come. In conclusion, John H. Cochrane's paper on rethinking monetary policy and independence is a must-read for anyone interested in the future of central banking and monetary policy. His ideas challenge current consensus opinions and offer new perspectives on how central banks can best fulfill their mandates and maintain their independence. 
As we navigate the uncertain waters of the COVID-19 pandemic and its aftermath, Cochrane's ideas are more relevant than ever and are sure to shape the debate on monetary policy for years to come. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and we hope... Welcome to this podcast episode where we will be discussing microfinancial interventions and their impact on poverty reduction. Microfinance is a term used to describe financial services provided to low-income individuals or those who do not have access to traditional banking services. These services include microcredit programs, asset grants, and small asset transfers to the very poor. The goal of microfinance is to provide financial services to those who are unable to access them through traditional banking channels. The idea is that by providing access to credit, savings, and insurance, individuals can improve their economic situation and reduce poverty. In this episode, we will be discussing the empirical evidence on microfinancial interventions and their impact on poverty reduction. We will also be exploring the role of economic theory in understanding the impact of these interventions. One of the main findings from the empirical evidence is that microcredit programs have a positive impact on poverty reduction. These programs provide small loans to individuals who are unable to access traditional banking services. The loans are typically used to start or expand a small business, which can lead to increased income and improved economic well-being. Another intervention that has been studied is asset grants. These grants provide individuals with a one-time transfer of assets, such as livestock or equipment, which can be used to generate income. The evidence suggests that asset grants can have a positive impact on poverty reduction, particularly for those who are extremely poor. However, it is important to note that while microfinancial interventions can have a positive impact on poverty reduction, they are not a silver bullet solution. The evidence suggests that these interventions are most effective when they are combined with other interventions, such as education and training programs. Economic theory can also help us understand the impact of microfinancial interventions. For example, economic theory suggests that access to credit can help individuals overcome liquidity constraints and invest in productive assets. This can lead to increased income and improved economic well-being. However, Economic theory also suggests that there are limits to the impact of microfinancial interventions. For example, if there are no profitable investment opportunities available, access to credit may not lead to increased income. In conclusion, microfinancial interventions can have a positive impact on poverty reduction, particularly when they are combined with other interventions such as education and training programs. Economic theory can help us understand the impact of these interventions but it is important to recognize that there are limits to their effectiveness. Thank you for listening to this episode on microfinancial interventions and poverty reduction. Thank you for listening to this episode on microfinancial interventions and poverty reduction. We hope that you have gained a better understanding of the empirical evidence on microcredit programs, asset grants, and small asset transfers to the very poor. 
We also hope that you have gained insight into the role of economic theory in understanding the impact of these interventions. It is important to recognize that while microfinancial interventions can have a positive impact on poverty reduction, they are not a silver bullet solution. Poverty is a complex issue that requires a multifaceted approach. In addition to microfinancial interventions, other interventions such as education and training programs, healthcare and infrastructure development are also important in reducing poverty. Thank you again for listening to this episode. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. We look forward to bringing you more informative episodes and Hello and welcome to our podcast on global risks. Today, we'll be discussing the various risks that economies around the world face and how they can impact the global economy as a whole. First, let's talk about what we mean by global risks. Essentially, these are any factors that could potentially disrupt economic growth or stability on a global scale. This could include things like natural disasters, political instability, or economic downturns. One of the key takeaways from our discussion today is that these risks are not limited to any one country or region. In fact, many of the risks that we'll be discussing are truly global in nature, meaning that they have the potential to impact economies around the world. So, what are some of these risks? Well, there are many different factors that could potentially disrupt economic growth or stability. For example, Natural disasters like hurricanes or earthquakes can cause significant damage to infrastructure and disrupt supply chains. Political instability, such as civil unrest or regime change, can also have a major impact on economic growth. Another major risk that we'll be discussing today is the potential for economic downturns. This could include things like recessions or financial crises, which can have a ripple effect throughout the global economy. For example, the 2008 financial crisis had a major impact on economies around the world, and it took years for many countries to fully recover. Of course, these risks are not limited to any one country or region. In fact, many of the risks that we'll be discussing are truly global in nature, meaning that they have the potential to impact economies around the world. So, what can be done to mitigate these risks? Well, there are a few different strategies that countries can use to prepare for potential disruptions. For example, many countries have contingency plans in place for natural disasters or other emergencies. Similarly, central banks can take steps to stabilize the economy during times of crisis, such as by lowering interest rates or injecting liquidity into the financial system. Ultimately, however, there is no foolproof way to completely eliminate the risks that economies face. Instead, it's important for countries to be aware of these risks and to take steps to prepare for them as best they can. In conclusion, global risks are a complex and multifaceted issue that can have a major impact on economies around the world. By understanding these risks and taking steps to prepare for them, countries can help to mitigate their impact 
and ensure a more stable and prosperous global economy. Thank you for listening, and we hope you found this discussion informative. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast on global risks. We hope that this discussion has given you a better understanding of the various factors that can impact the global economy and how countries can prepare for potential disruptions. Remember, while there is no way to completely eliminate these risks, being aware of them and taking steps to prepare for them can go a long way in ensuring a more stable and prosperous global economy. If you have any questions or comments about today's discussion, please feel free to reach out to us. And be sure to tune in next time for more Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today we will be discussing an interesting topic in finance asset pricing through the Hansen Jagannathan Bound. Asset pricing is a crucial aspect of finance as it helps investors determine the value of different financial assets such as stocks, bonds, and derivatives. The Hansen Jagannathan Bound, HJ Bound, is a statistical tool that helps us evaluate the validity of stochastic discount factors, SDFS, in asset pricing models. So, what exactly is an SDF? In simple terms, an SDF is a mathematical function that relates the expected return of an asset to its risk. It is used to price financial assets and is a key component of many asset pricing models. However, not all SDFs are created equal and some may not accurately reflect the observed returns of financial assets. This is where the H.J. Bound comes in. The H.J. Bound is a statistical test that helps us determine whether a proposed SDF is consistent with observed asset returns. It does this by comparing the volatility of the SDF to the upper bound of the volatility of any admissible SDF. An admissible SDF is one that satisfies certain necessary conditions such as being positive and having a finite variance. If the volatility of the proposed SDF is within the HJ bound, then it is considered valid. The paper we are discussing today explores the use of the HJ bound in evaluating the validity of different asset pricing models. The authors apply the HJ bound to three popular models, the Mara Prescott model, the Epstein-Zinn model, and the Weil model and find that all three models fail to satisfy the necessary conditions for an admissible SDF. However, the authors do not stop there. They propose modifications to each of the models that add just one parameter and increase the volatility of the SDF. By applying the HJ bound to these modified models, they find that they are able to satisfy the necessary conditions for an admissible SDF. Overall, this paper highlights the importance of the HJ bound in evaluating the validity of asset pricing models. It also demonstrates how modifications to these models can improve their fit with observed asset returns. In conclusion, asset pricing is a complex and important aspect of finance, and the Hansen Jagannathan bound is a valuable tool for evaluating the validity of stochastic discount factors in asset pricing models. 
This paper provides valuable insights into the use of the H.J. bound in evaluating the Mera Prescott, Epstein Zinn, and Weil models and how modifications to these models can improve their fit with observed asset returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. We hope you found this discussion on asset pricing and the Hansen-Jaganathan bound informative and insightful. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Don't forget to tune in to our next episode for more interesting Hello and welcome to our podcast on offshoring to a developing nation with a dual labor market. In this episode, we will be discussing the unique challenges and opportunities presented by offshoring to a country with both a formal and informal labor sector. Offshoring, or outsourcing work to a foreign country, has become increasingly popular in recent years as companies seek to reduce costs and increase efficiency. However, Offshoring to a developing nation with a dual labor market presents a unique set of challenges and opportunities. In many developing nations, there is a formal labor sector that is regulated by the government and a large informal sector that is unregulated. The formal sector typically consists of larger, more established firms that offer higher wages and benefits, while the informal sector is made up of smaller, less established firms that offer lower wages and little to no benefits. One of the main challenges of offshoring to a developing nation with a dual labor market is navigating the differences between the formal and informal sectors. Firms must decide whether to outsource to the formal sector, which offers more stability and higher quality work, or to the informal sector, which offers lower costs but less stability and potentially lower quality work. Another challenge is navigating the complex labor regulations in the formal sector. These regulations can make it difficult for firms to respond quickly to changes in demand or other shocks, which can be a disadvantage in a fast-paced global economy. Despite these challenges, offshoring to a developing nation with a dual labor market also presents many opportunities. For example, outsourcing to the informal sector can provide firms with access to a large pool of low-cost labor, which can help them reduce costs and increase profits. Additionally, Offshoring to a developing nation can help stimulate economic growth and reduce poverty by creating jobs and increasing demand for goods and services. Overall, offshoring to a developing nation with a dual labor market requires careful consideration and planning. Firms must weigh the potential benefits and drawbacks of outsourcing to the formal and informal sectors, as well as navigate complex labor regulations and other challenges. However, with the right strategy and approach, Offshoring to a developing nation can be a valuable tool for reducing costs, increasing efficiency, and stimulating economic growth. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast on offshoring to a developing nation with a dual labor market. We hope you found this episode informative and insightful. Be sure to tune in next time for more discussions on important topics in business and economics. Thank you for listening to our podcast on offshoring to a developing nation with a dual labor market.
We hope you found this episode informative and insightful. In conclusion, offshoring to a developing nation with a dual labor market presents a unique set of challenges and opportunities. Firms must carefully consider the potential benefits and drawbacks of outsourcing to the formal and informal sectors, as well as navigate complex labor regulations and other challenges. However, with the right strategy and approach, offshoring to a developing nation can be a valuable tool for reducing costs, increasing efficiency, and stimulating economic growth. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please feel free to reach out to us. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. And be sure to tune in next time for more discussions on important topics in business and economics. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to our podcast on the topic of reconstructing the Great Recession. In this episode, we will be discussing the role of the construction sector in driving the boom and bust of the U.S. economy during 2113. The Great Recession was a period of economic decline that lasted from 2007 to 2009. It was the most severe economic downturn since the Great Depression of the 1930s. The recession was triggered by the collapse of the housing market, which led to a financial crisis that spread throughout the global economy. The construction sector played a significant role in the housing boom that preceded the Great Recession. During the early 2000s, the construction industry experienced a period of rapid growth, fueled by low interest rates and easy access to credit. This led to a surge in housing construction, which in turn drove up home prices and created a housing bubble. However, when the housing bubble burst in 2007, the construction industry was hit hard. Home prices plummeted, and many homeowners found themselves underwater on their mortgages. This led to a wave of foreclosures and a sharp decline in demand for new housing construction. The decline in the construction industry had a ripple effect throughout the economy. Many construction workers lost their jobs and the companies that supplied materials and equipment to the industry also suffered. This led to a decline in consumer spending, which further weakened the economy. In this PDF file, Michele Boldrin, Carlos Garriga, Adrian Peralta Alva, and Juan M. Snenchez evaluate the role of the construction sector in driving the boom and bust of the U.S. economy during 2013. They argue that the traditional view of the business cycle literature, which holds that idiosyncratic sectoral shocks are likely to average out and have no aggregate effects as the number of sectors in the economy gets larger, is flawed. The authors suggest that the construction sector's impact on the economy goes beyond its share of employment and GDP. They argue that the construction sector is a key driver of economic growth and that its decline can have significant negative effects on the economy as a whole. The authors also examine the role of the housing boom from 200,000 207 in contributing to employment and GDP growth. They find that the housing boom did indeed contribute to employment and GDP growth, but that this growth was not sustainable in the long run. 
When the housing bubble burst, the economy suffered a severe shock that led to a prolonged period of economic decline. Finally, the authors used dynamic equilibrium input-output models to evaluate the contribution of the construction sector to the Great Recession and the expansion preceding it. They find that the construction sector and housing consumption are strongly interconnected to the rest of the economy, and that the decline in the construction sector had a significant negative impact on the economy as a whole. The implications of the findings in this article for future economic policies and planning are significant. Policymakers need to be aware of the interconnectedness of the construction sector and the rest of the economy, and take steps to mitigate the negative effects of any future declines in the construction industry. This could include measures to support the industry during periods of decline, such as targeted stimulus spending or tax incentives. Overall, this PDF file provides valuable insights into the role of the construction sector in driving the boom and bust of the U.S. economy during 2113. It highlights the importance of understanding the interconnectedness of different sectors of the economy and the need for policymakers to take a holistic approach to economic planning and policy. Hello and welcome to today's episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing an interesting and informative PDF file titled The Case of the Reappearing Phillips Curve. This PDF file delves into the relationship between interest rates and economic activity and how changes in monetary policy can affect real output and inflation. The Phillips Curve is a concept that describes the inverse relationship between unemployment and inflation. It suggests that when unemployment is low, inflation tends to be high, and vice versa. This relationship has been a topic of interest for economists for many years and has been used to guide monetary policy decisions. However, recent research has shown that the Phillips curve may not be as reliable as previously thought. The PDF file we are discussing today explores this issue in depth and provides insights into the potential pitfalls in estimating the slope of the Phillips curve. One of the key findings of the PDF file is that changes in monetary policy can have a significant impact on real output and inflation. This is because changes in interest rates can affect the borrowing and spending behavior of households and businesses, which in turn can impact economic activity. The PDF file also discusses the new Keynesian model, which is a theoretical framework that helps us better understand the relationship between interest rates and real activity. This model suggests that changes in interest rates can affect the output gap, which is the difference between actual output and potential output. When the output gap is positive, inflation tends to be high, and when it is negative, inflation tends to be low. However, the PDF file also highlights some of the limitations of the new Keynesian model. For example, it assumes that households and businesses have perfect information about the economy, which may not be the case in reality. It also assumes that prices and wages are flexible, which may not be true in the short run. Overall, the PDF file provides a comprehensive overview of the Phillips curve and its relationship to monetary policy. 
It highlights some of the challenges in estimating the slope of the Phillips curve and provides insights into the potential impact of changes in monetary policy on real output and inflation. In conclusion, the PDF file we have discussed today is a valuable resource for anyone interested in understanding the relationship between interest rates and economic activity. It provides a detailed analysis of the Phillips curve and its limitations and offers insights into the potential impact of changes in monetary policy on the economy. We hope you have found this episode informative and insightful, and we look forward to bringing you more interesting topics in the future. Hey, thank you for tuning in to today's episode of our podcast. We hope you have enjoyed learning about the case of the reappearing Phillips curve and its insights into the relationship between interest rates and economic activity. If you would like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to read the PDF file for yourself and explore the research further episodes. We welcome your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us on social media or via email. We appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more informative and engaging content in the future. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode where we will be discussing the fascinating topic of fertility and internal migration. This is a complex and multifaceted issue that has significant implications for economic development, demographic transition, and social welfare. At its core, this topic is concerned with understanding the relationship between migration patterns and fertility rates across different countries and regions. Migration is a fundamental aspect of human history and has played a critical role in shaping societies and economies around the world. Internal migration, in particular, refers to the movement of people within a country, from rural to urban areas, or from one region to another. One of the key questions that researchers have been exploring is how internal migration affects fertility rates. Fertility rates are a measure of the number of children born to women of childbearing age in a given population. These rates can vary widely across different countries and regions, and they are influenced by a range of factors, including economic development, social norms, and cultural values. The relationship between migration and fertility rates is complex and multifaceted. On the one hand, migration can lead to changes in family structure and social norms which can affect fertility rates. For example, when people move from rural to urban areas, they may adopt new lifestyles and values that are more conducive to smaller families. On the other hand, migration can also lead to changes in economic opportunities and social welfare, which can have a positive or negative impact on fertility rates. To better understand this relationship, researchers have conducted cross-country data analysis and developed theoretical models to explain the dynamics of internal migration and fertility rates. B's studies have revealed some interesting patterns and insights. For example, they have found that fertility rates tend to be higher in rural areas than in urban areas, and that migration from rural to urban areas can lead to a decline in fertility rates. 
They have also found that economic development and social welfare policies can play a significant role in shaping migration patterns and fertility rates. Another important aspect of this topic is the relationship between internal migration and demographic transition. Demographic transition refers to the process by which populations move from high fertility and mortality rates to low fertility and mortality rates as a result of economic and social development. Internal migration can play a critical role in this process by facilitating the movement of people from rural to urban areas where they can access better health care, education, and economic opportunities. Overall, the topic of fertility and internal migration is a complex and multifaceted issue that has significant implications for economic development, demographic transition, and social welfare. By better understanding the dynamics of this relationship, policymakers and researchers can develop more effective strategies to promote sustainable economic growth and social welfare. In conclusion, we hope that this podcast episode has provided you with a better understanding of the topic of fertility and internal migration. We encourage you to explore this issue further and to stay informed about the latest research and policy developments in this area. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more informative and engaging content in the future. Hello and welcome to our podcast on the responses of international central banks to the COVID-19 crisis. In this episode, we will be discussing how central banks around the world have responded to the economic challenges brought about by the pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic has had a significant impact on the global economy, with many businesses forced to close and millions of people losing their jobs. In response, central banks have implemented a range of measures to support financial markets and ensure that the economy remains stable. One of the key measures taken by central banks has been to lower interest rates. By reducing interest rates, central banks make it cheaper for businesses and individuals to borrow money, which can help to stimulate economic activity. In addition, central banks have also implemented quantitative easing programs which involve buying large quantities of government bonds and other securities in order to inject money into the economy. Another important measure taken by central banks has been to provide liquidity to financial markets. This has involved setting up lending facilities to provide banks and other financial institutions with access to short-term funding. By providing this funding, central banks have helped to ensure that financial markets remain stable and that businesses have access to the capital they need to continue operating. Central banks have also worked closely with fiscal authorities and regulators to implement measures to support businesses and individuals affected by the pandemic. This has included providing loan guarantees, deferring loan repayments, and implementing wage subsidy programs. Overall, the response of central banks to the COVID-19 crisis has been swift and decisive. By implementing a range of measures to support financial markets and the economy, central banks have helped to mitigate the impact of the pandemic on businesses and individuals around the world. However, it is important to note that the long-term impact of the pandemic on the global economy is still uncertain.
While central banks have taken steps to support financial markets in the short term, it remains to be seen how the pandemic will affect the economy in the years to come. In conclusion, the COVID-19 pandemic has presented significant challenges for the global economy, but central banks have responded with a range of measures to support financial markets and ensure that the economy remains stable. While the long-term impact of the pandemic is still uncertain, the swift and decisive response of central banks has helped to mitigate the impact of the crisis on businesses and individuals around the world. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the responses of international central banks to the COVID-19 crisis. We hope that this episode has provided you with valuable insights into the role of central banks in responding to the COVID-19 crisis. As the pandemic continues to evolve, it is important to stay informed about the latest developments and the measures being taken by central banks and other authorities to support the economy. If you would like to learn more about the topics discussed in this episode, we encourage you to read the PDF document on the responses of international central banks to the COVID-19 crisis. This document provides a detailed analysis of the measures taken by central banks around the world to support financial markets and the economy during the pandemic. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and we look forward to bringing you more insight. Hello and welcome to our podcast on the economic effects of the 2018 U.S. trade policy. In this episode, we will be discussing the impact of the trade war on the United States, its trading partners, and the global economy. The trade war began in 2018 when the U.S. administration imposed tariffs on specific goods from China, citing concerns over intellectual property theft and trade imbalances. In response, China retaliated with tariffs on U.S. goods, and the U.S. subsequently imposed tariffs on other major trading partners such as Canada, Mexico, and the European Union. The impact of the trade war on the U.S. economy was significant. The tariffs led to higher prices for consumers and businesses, reduced demand for U.S. exports, and disrupted global supply chains. The uncertainty surrounding the trade policy also led to a decline in business investment and slowed economic growth. The effects of the trade war were not limited to the United States. The tariffs and trade tensions had a ripple effect on the global economy, leading to a slowdown in global trade and investment. The International Monetary Fund estimated that the trade war reduced global economic growth by 0.8% in 2019. The trade war also had a significant impact on specific sectors and states within the United States. For example, the agricultural sector was hit hard by retaliatory tariffs from China, which led to a decline in exports and lower prices for farmers. States with a high concentration of manufacturing jobs, such as Michigan and Ohio, were also affected by disruptions in global supply chains. Despite the negative impact of the trade war, there were some winners. Some U.S. industries, such as steel and aluminum, benefited from the tariffs, as they faced less competition from imports. However, 
the benefits were outweighed by the costs to other industries and the overall economy. In conclusion, the 2018 U.S. trade policy had significant economic effects on the United States, its trading partners, and the global economy. The tariffs and trade tensions led to higher prices, reduced demand for exports, disrupted supply chains, and slowed economic growth. While some industries benefited from the trade policy, the overall costs to the economy were significant. As the trade war continued, negotiations between the U.S. and China led to a Phase I trade deal in January 2020, which included a reduction in some tariffs and increased purchases of U.S. goods by China. However, many tariffs remain in place, and the trade relationship between the two countries remains tense. The COVID-19 pandemic also had a significant impact on global trade and investment, further complicating the economic effects of the trade war. As the world continues to grapple with the pandemic and its economic fallout, it remains to be seen how the trade relationship between the U.S. and its trading partners will evolve. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the economic effects of the 2018 U.S. trade policy. Hello and welcome to our podcast on the declining labor share. Today, we will be discussing the various factors that have contributed to this trend, as well as potential policy solutions to address it. First, let's define what we mean by the labor share. The labor share refers to the portion of national income that goes to workers in the form of wages, salaries, and benefits. In recent decades, this share has been declining in many countries around the world meaning that a smaller proportion of national income is going to workers. So, what are some of the factors that have contributed to this trend? One major factor is technological change, particularly the rise of automation and artificial intelligence. As machines become more capable of performing tasks that were previously done by humans, the demand for labor decreases, which can lead to lower wages and a smaller labor share. Another factor is globalization which has led to increased competition from low-wage countries. This competition can put downward pressure on wages, particularly for workers in industries that are exposed to international trade. In addition, changes in the structure of the economy have also played a role. For example, the shift away from manufacturing and towards services has led to a decline in the labor share, as service jobs tend to pay lower wages than manufacturing jobs. So, what can be done to address the declining labor share? One potential solution is to invest in education and training programs that help workers acquire the skills they need to succeed in a changing economy. This can help workers adapt to new technologies and industries and can also increase their bargaining power in the labor market. Another solution is to strengthen labor protections and increase the minimum wage. By ensuring that workers are paid a fair wage and have access to benefits like health care and paid leave, we can help to reduce inequality and increase the labor share. 
Finally, we can also explore new models of ownership and governance that give workers a greater say in the companies they work for. For example, worker cooperatives and employee-owned firms can help to ensure that workers share in the profits of the companies they help to build. In conclusion, the declining labor share is a complex issue with many contributing factors. However, by investing in education and training, strengthening labor protections and exploring new models of ownership and governance, we can work towards a more equitable and sustainable economy that benefits workers and their families. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and we hope you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast on the declining labor share. We hope that this discussion has shed some light on the various factors that have contributed to this trend, as well as potential policy solutions to address it. It is important to note that the declining labor share is not just an economic issue, but also a social and political one. As the gap between the rich and poor widens, it can lead to social unrest and political instability. By working towards a more equitable and sustainable economy, we can help to create a better future for all. If you are interested in learning more about this topic, we encourage you to read the PDF file that inspired this podcast. It provides a comprehensive review of the leading explanations for the declining labor share, as well as new dimensions of the data and a new explanation for the trend. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more informative and thought-provoking discussions in the future. Hello and welcome to our podcast. Today, we will be discussing an important topic that affects many people across the United States, the housing market, and its impact on the Great Recession. The Great Recession was a period of economic downturn that lasted from 2007 to 2009. It was caused by a variety of factors, including the collapse of the housing market. During this time, Many homeowners found themselves unable to pay their mortgages, leading to a wave of foreclosures and a decline in housing prices. This, in turn, had a ripple effect on the broader economy, leading to job losses, business closures, and a general sense of economic uncertainty. So, what caused the housing market to collapse in the first place? There are many factors at play, but one of the key issues was a lack of liquidity in the market. In other words, there were not enough buyers and sellers to keep the market functioning smoothly. This led to a situation where homes were sitting on the market for longer periods of time, and prices were not adjusting quickly enough to reflect changing market conditions. This is where our PDF comes in. The Geography of Housing Market Liquidity During the Great Recession is a research paper that explores the impact of housing liquidity on the severity, timing, and length of the Great Recession across different regions in the United States. The authors of the paper use a variety of data sources, including IRS data and housing market statistics, to paint a picture of how the housing market performed during this time. One of the key findings of the paper is that there was a great deal of variation in housing market performance across different zip codes. Some areas were hit much harder than others, 
with longer listing times and steeper declines in housing prices. This suggests that there were local factors at play that contributed to the overall collapse of the housing market. Another important finding of the paper is that liquidity played a significant role in the housing market collapse. Homes that sat on the market for longer periods of time tended to sell for lower prices, which in turn led to more foreclosures and a further decline in prices. This created a vicious cycle that was difficult to break. So, what can we learn from this research? For one thing, it highlights the importance of liquidity in the housing market. When there are not enough buyers and sellers, the market can become unstable and lead to a collapse. Policymakers should be aware of this and take steps to ensure that the market remains liquid, even during times of economic uncertainty. Additionally, the research underscores the importance of local factors in understanding the housing market. While there were certainly broader economic forces at play during the Great Recession, the fact that different zip codes experienced different levels of housing market performance suggests that there were also local factors at play. Policymakers should take this into account when designing policies to address housing market issues. Overall, the geography of housing market liquidity during the Great Recession is an important piece of research that sheds light on the complex factors that contributed to the housing market collapse during the Great Recession. By understanding the role of liquidity and local factors in the housing market, we can work towards creating a more stable and sustainable housing market in the future.